Hello, and welcome to Down to Sally's Cove, a collection of stories about Newfoundland and Labrador by the late Ella Manuel and read by me, Anthony Berger. I'm the editor of my mother's writings about the history and rich culture of the places and people she knew and loved. Many of these stories she read on local and national radio in the 1940s to 1970s. Among the early 19th century seamen who wrote of their voyages to Newfoundland and Labrador was British Lieutenant Edward Chappell. In 1818, he published an account of the cruise five years earlier of HMS Rosamund to Newfoundland and Labrador, quote, of which countries no account has been published by any British traveler since the reign of Queen Elizabeth, unquote. While visiting southern Labrador, he wrote that, We were much surprised on visiting our good friend Mr. Pinson to find a handsome female seated at the head of his table. The sight of a white woman was now a real gratification to us all, and our officers were anxiously desirous to discover by what means she had been thrown upon the savage territory of Labrador. Chapel recorded the strange tale told by Mrs. E, as he called her. Ella Manuel, in the voice of the young woman herself, retells the story with some artistic license, as Mrs. E is shipwrecked off Green Gardens. I have always loved the sea and ships. My earliest memory is of my father, a Quebec merchant, taking me down to the river and aboard the foreign vessels that crowded our dockside. My strongest recollection is of my father and my mother standing on the dock to wave farewell as I sailed down the river with my new husband. It was his first long voyage since our marriage, and despite warnings from my family that the journey would be long and hazardous, I was determined to accompany him in the little brig of which he was captain. It was on December the 2nd, 1812, that we set sail bound for Labrador to load a cargo of dried cod and thence to Liverpool. The weather was calm, and for the first three days we had a comfortable passage. But when we reached the St. Lawrence Gulf, we ran into a tremendous storm which lasted for a day and a night with thick snow adding to the darkness. When we were driven far off course, my husband showed some concern, to which the mate, who knew this passage well, added by declaring, if this wind does not abate, we shall drive straight onto the Newfoundland coast. My husband thought we might find anchorage in a cove and there wait out the storm, but the mate warned him, There's neither harbor nor creek nor habitation for a hundred miles on that God-forsaken coast. I know, I have seen that cruel land. How cruel it was, we soon discovered. With our sails in shreds, poles bare, we were hove to when the wind shifted, and in wind and darkness we were driven ashore. I can still hear the crash, still see the lantern's feeble gleam as we forced our way over smashed timbers awash on the deck. I can still remember how the darkness was torn briefly by the moon's light. Only by that single brief flash were we able to find the shore and to row our little dory to it. I remember a feeling of great thankfulness that we were still alive, every one of the crew, and that we'd had the upturned boat and a shred of canvas to shelter us against the freezing wind. The long night wore on in silence, nor again did we see the moon, and when the day dawned, 
not with sun, but with a cold grey light which reflected from a steely sea, we drank a mouthful of brandy and looked about us. There, by heaven's mercy, was our ship, high on a jagged rock, stranded by the receding tide. Behind us, and reaching almost to the water's edge, smooth-faced mountains hemmed us in. Snow covered all, and the silence was as deep as the snow. Before us, the sea heaved in great unbroken waves, with only a thin line of foam to mark the shore which had caught us. So we launched our tiny dory, and hastened to remove whatever we could before the tide rose. When it did, and sucked our little vessel under, we turned from the horrid sight, sick at heart, our last link with humanity, so rudely broken. But we were grateful for what we had saved. We should not starve, not for some weeks, anyway. We had nails, canvas, and planks with which to build shelter against the intolerable cold. My husband climbed through the deep snow to the mountain tops, seeking where we might build a hut further inland. He returned to say that as far as one could see were plateaus and peaks, and in valleys were frozen lakes and streams and dense woods. It was clear that we should have to remain for some time on the thirty or forty feet of shore between mountains and sea. So there we built two huts, one for my husband and me and the mate, which would also contain the stores and our tiny supply of gunpowder, the other a little way off for the crew. Against the further end of our hut I hung a piece of canvas to afford some privacy, and at night we slept on the bare floor in the clothing we wore all day long. We built a fireplace under a hole in the hut's roof, but the burning of the sodden green boughs that we had gathered with difficulty from under the snowbanks made so acrid a smoke that we found the cold more bearable. However, we were soon able to build a sort of fireplace on the beach for the cooking of our food. Then, when everything possible was done for our comfort, we took stock of our situation. The mate, who, as I've said, had sailed along this rope many times, believed that we were on the barren coast north of the Bay of Islands, and south of the bay which the French called La Belle Bay, where for many miles mountains rose sharply from the sea and fell away inland into woods and ravines inhabited only by wild animals. A few people lived by the shore during the summer, but when autumn storms came they moved inland. How far and in what direction we didn't know. We knew that it would be folly to attempt moving over that desolate land through snow that piled sometimes to a depth of ten feet, perhaps to find nothing in the end. We were imprisoned between mountains and sea, but we hoped that there was a chance that the sea would bring us rescue, although the mate said that small vessels would not come within two miles of the shore, so confused was the sea and so full of reefs. Yet we hoped that some vessel bound south from Labrador would pass by and sight us. The days crawled on. Dirt and dampness affected us disagreeably. Our faces were caked with ash, our eyes red and inflamed from the constant smoke. My hair, of which I had been so proud with its golden sheen and soft curls, was now matted with icicles that didn't melt even in the warmth of sleep. That, to me, was a source of torment. One day, when my husband went to search for firewood, I cut my hair close to the scalp. So small an act it was, but how forlorn I felt. No longer was I a bride to be cherished, but an unkempt derelict. My husband wept that night when he saw what I had done. 
It was about this time that we gave up hope of rescue, for no ship would sight us now in the dead of winter. The ice grew thicker and stretched as far as one could see. At night it groaned and creaked like some giant tree in the frozen woods. I was often utterly spent and often longed only for the oblivion of sleep. But I would not, for pity's sake, let my dear husband see how badly it went with me. While I could, I accompanied him on expeditions for firewood and to set snares for animals that never came. One day, when nauseated and weak, I lay wrapped in a cloak before the smoky fire and felt obliged for his peace of mind to tell my husband that I was with child. How happy I am to recall that moment. I had withheld the news from him, believing that it would only add to his burdens, but I was wrong. For now we were spurred to hold to life and to greet each day with hope. And I will confess to you that when the sun shone on that white world, the austere beauty of the mountains carved with black shadows lifted our hearts. Life was precious. It was lovely when such moments of pure delight blotted out pain and hunger. Still, such moments were few and hope we needed now. Our crew became more and more sullen and troublesome. They hounded us for more food, more brandy, and we could not make them understand that we shared alike in food and drink, and in risk of using all our stores before help came. I could not be left alone with these men, so that when I was forced to remain in the hut, my husband or the mate kept me company, and none of us had a moment's peace. I don't think that these men were evil, not all of them, but I do believe that one among them urged the others to rebel. One night of wind and terrible cold, we were waked by the sound of footsteps outside our hut. As we listened in the silence, we were aware of a penetrating odor of smoke coming from the corner of our hut, where our stores were piled. We barely had time to remove the gunpowder before the flames reached it. We put out the fire, and next day we learned that it had been started by a drunken sailor tossing a brand into the hut. After that we set a watch, nightly, and daily went in fear of our lives. Thus the weeks passed, in hunger and cold and pain, but sometimes with sights of such unearthly beauty that we were stirred to wonder and awe. My husband and I looked forward to our child and we were happy just to be alive, though often we were anxious about our dwindling stock of food. Then came a day when the wind shifted and the ice moved from shore. The snow melted and poured in torrents down the mountain sides. Spring was upon us. The mate formed a party to explore the coast and search for fish and game, and my husband and I were alone, with the day stretching ahead full of the promise of pleasure in our being together. As we sat in the weak sunshine, enjoying its feeble warmth, we saw a black spot on the water about half a mile from shore. My husband seized his spyglass, and his hands shook with excitement as he whispered, I think it's a cask from our wreck. It may be food. And without another word, he pushed off the little boat and rowed away. I picked up the glass and marked his progress. He leaned over the barrel, turned and waved to me with a reassuring smile, and then I saw the boat rock and overturn. My husband disappeared beneath the water. I remembered no more of that day. When the men returned hours later, I was sitting on the beach with the glass in my hand. I was alone. The boat was gone. No words were needed to tell them what had happened, and of words to describe the horror I had none. Days must have passed, 
but I don't remember them, before the mate came to me and for the first time talked to me of our situation. He spoke of my husband, of the child I was bearing, of home and of my parents, and he said, We must go now. We must travel inland. We must find food, shelter, and help. His words gave me strength, hope, and courage. We set out, feet almost bare, clothes in tatters, and we climbed the mountains and turned our backs to the sea. All day we walked through a wild landscape, brown, scarred, barren hills to our right, like pictures I'd seen in the Bible of the Holy Lands. And to our left, as if the hills had been cut cleanly with a knife, the verdant green of spring grass sloped up to softer hills. We must have walked through that wide valley for ten miles or more. We slept beside a stream that night, eating the soft, frost-bitten red berries we found in profusion. Late the next morning we saw smoke rising in the distance, and we came finally upon a cluster of houses along the shores of a wide bay. Outside one house a man stood. He looked at us briefly and then intently. He turned his head and shouted, Virtue, Virtue, come quickly. We have some shipwrecked people, a woman too. Oh, the wonderful sight of that lady with her starched white apron, her neat hair, her clean, smooth face, and how she cared for me. She brought me water in which to bathe, milk to drink, and then she wrapped me in her best linen sheets. That was my undoing. For the first time since my husband left me, I wept. And then I slept for a day and a night and another day. While I slept, the kindly folk of Jersey Rooms, for that was the name of our village, had cared for the crew and arranged for them to go north in some fishing boats to Labrador, where they would find ships to take them to their homes. Virtue would not let me accompany them, for she said I had to rest and regain my strength, so I lodged several weeks with her before a passage was found for me to Forteau in Labrador, where they said I would quickly find a packet bound for Quebec. Virtue's husband charged the skipper of the little vessel I sailed in to lodge me with a friend of his, a man with whom I should be comfortable. But when we came to Forteau, the friend had gone, and I was put to lodge with a Guernsey fisherman. He was an evil man, and I was at peril, alone and without a friend. Help came, as it always seemed to do, through the kindly, nay, almost saintly, people it was my good fortune to meet. Mr. Pinson, the planter in the village, offered me hospitality. He was a widower, but his house was large and filled with servants, and I was an honored guest. I recall the night when Mr. Pinson asked me if I would dine with him and his friends, English naval officers from the cruiser Rosamond. Well, they'd be delighted with a lady's company, he told me. I was vain enough to dress as well as I could and to arrange my hair, which had grown quite long and curly again, and I thought myself quite presentable. So did young Lieutenant Chapel, I'm sure, for he plied me that night with many questions about my adventure, and said he would write it down in his journal for all to read. That was my last night in Forteau. The next day I sailed for Quebec, arrived well in time for the birth of my son. My parents, who had mourned me dead, poured on me the love and care that had been pent up in them these long months. They said to me that I should tell my own story, lest the young lieutenant make me out more of a heroine than I am, my adventures more tragic than they were. For am I not alive? Do I not have my son so like his father? 
Some day I shall go back to Newfoundland to visit my dear virtue, and to thank Mr. Pinson for his kindness, and to see the land which, despite its cruelty, still haunts me with its beauty. So ends the tale of the lady known only as Mrs. E. She never returned to Newfoundland. Her friend Virtue lies in the old cemetery by the seashore in the village of Jersey Rooms that we now call Woody Point, in the bay the French called La Belle, but to us is Bonne. Now, from Chapel's record, it seems likely that the wreck occurred off Green Gardens between Bonne Bay and Trout River. Having survived the winter on the narrow coastal terrace there, the survivors eventually walked out through Trout River Gulch and down the hills to Winterhouse Brook and Woody Point. Who Mrs. E. was and what became of her are unknown. Her reception in Woody Point and the person named Virtue were imagined by El Emanuel. That was me, Anthony Berger, reading a story by the late El Emanuel from the podcast series Down to Sally's Cove. This was recorded in the studios of VOBB, the Voice of Bombay, community radio in the heart of Grossmoor National Park in western Newfoundland. Recording engineer and sound editor was Gary Wilton. Background music from Coffee in the Cove, written and played by David Berger. Together with a biography of my mother, these and other stories are available in book form entitled No Place for a Woman, The Life and Newfoundland Stories of El Emanuel, published in 2020 by Breakwater Books, St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. Thanks for listening. In next week's episode, El Emanuel hears of the mysterious disappearance of a man from Rocky Harbor around 1900.